So tonight I'm going to be joined by a few interesting and wonderful people up on stage. And they're going to join us progressively. We're going to come in on in waves, which is not unlike the meditative and psychedelic experience. Um, before, we're joined by Trudy Goodman, Spring Washam, and Dr. Charles Grob, and then finally, Ram Das. Uh, I wanted to share a little bit of my story. And I think my story is not so different than many uh, young practitioners who I've met, young people interested in meditation, in that um, it involves some mix of contemplative practice that's rooted in tradition and also some exploration of illicit and um, very interesting and ancient substances which help expand consciousness and um, are really related in some ways to the meditative journey. I actually started out as a straight edge med meditator um, in that I was practicing in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, which is one of the most straight edge Buddhist traditions there is. And I really loved it. I, I felt like the purity of the practice and the clarity of the view and the emphasis on renunciation and self-discipline was all really great. Um, and, and that was my path for the first several years of my kind of formal training. And during that time, I spent about a year or so on retreat, not all at once, but uh, over the course of the first 10 years. And it became, you know, kind of like an obsession, you know, how it is when you get really into the stuff. It just becomes, you know, for me, it became my life. It was everything. And so I had a lot um, invested in that practice and in my ideas about what I was doing. And um, to be honest with you, I was kind of really rigid about it all. I thought, this is the way that you have to do this. And uh, I didn't say that out loud, but internally, I, I kind of believed that. <laughs> and uh, I remember I was living in Colorado with my wife, Emily, and uh, later I found out after I started to kind of open up a little bit and try, try to kind of relax, um, that my wife would often, uh, not often, like every several months, she'd go out with friends and she'd smoke some cannabis and then come back home. And I never knew, I never knew about any of this. <laughs> and the reason is because I was such a sanctimonious prick about it all. <laughs> Sorry, honey. <laughs> um, That was her that just laughed. <laughs> she knows. In 2010, um, I was hanging out with friends at a, a party in Colorado, in Boulder, where I lived at the time. And one of my friend's girlfriends uh, came in, and she medical marijuana had recently become legalized and available, and it was, like, really available. And she came in and, like, started showing us all these different, you know, forms of cannabis that she had. This is like Hawaiian something and, you know, sour diesel something. And I was like, oh, okay. And I recently been feeling more open and flexible and realizing, oh, like this thing that I'm meditating for and trying to attain, like it's not all that serious. It's actually just kind of just realizing that everything is okay. Um, 
And so I was like, okay, I'm going to try. You know, I'd, I'd smoked pot once uh, when I was in high school um, and gone to a school dance and got really paranoid and ran into the bathroom and <laughs> put like visine in my eyes. <laughs> Had some weird time dilation experiences, but it didn't, you know, it wasn't like I'd preferred to be, you know, drunk. So that was my drug of choice at the time. Um, so I tried, you know, smoking uh, in this party and suddenly found myself sitting back in the couch, as one does, <laughs> and having this experience where I was no longer identified with this body-mind. I was instead this kind of witnessing, spacious presence who was aware of the room, not attached to anything that was happening, and I was seeing all these people talking to each other and interacting, and I was seeing them as if, and I really it felt like they were actors all playing these roles, like almost like, um, you know, an impromptu performance and that they weren't really, that's not really who they were. Uh, it was, we were all playing this kind of game with each other of trying to be these certain people. And it was a really profound contemplative experience um, that reminded me of the experiences that I had meditating on retreat. It was a great reminder um, that, you know, I'm not who I think I am and neither are you. And after that, I was really just kind of blown away by how, um, one, how arrogant I had been, thinking that like nothing else in the world but this particular kind of meditation could, you know, help reveal these kind of deep things about consciousness and being alive. Um, and then the second thing that happened was that the experience of working with cannabis helped me experience my body because <laughs> um, I'd gotten really good at being aware of my body uh, in meditation of kind of observing it and noticing the sensations and seeing everything come and go but what I hadn't realized uh, is that I wasn't at all inside it um, I wasn't embodied at all and the experience of cannabis kind of, in, it was like an invita gentle invitation into this, you know, embodied experience. And so that was really um, enlightening. Um, and, and it was something that I hadn't seen meditating, um, even though I'm sure it was pointed out to me. <laughs> um, and the last thing that happened in that experience is that I became more open to exploring other things. So in that sense, cannabis ended up being like a real, in, in a true sense, a gateway drug. Um, <laughs> except it, was, it wasn't the gateway that I had learned about, you know, growing up. It wasn't like, you know, the eggs getting fried, your brain fried on drugs. Um, although I'm sure there's, it's a little weird in there. Um, it was more a gateway into exploring these more psychoactive substances um, because you know, cannabis has a little bit of that in it. And so a few years later, I had an opportunity for the first time to try psychedelics. And this is when I was turning 30 years old. Um, I had sort of planning it for a while and organized with a, a small group of friends uh, a series of journeys using shrooms. And so over the course of these four 
experiences over about a month, um, I was introduced to you know the psychedelic experience. And the first thing I realized was, oh, this is not that different from all of the experiences that I've had, especially on long, intensive meditation retreats, except it was kind of like compressed and accelerated. Um, there were some unique aspects to the psychedelic experience that were different, um, and I've talked a little bit about that on the podcast, um, so I won't get into it here, but um, during the last journey that I had, and this was also really informative, I, I had something of a, uh, like a psychotic break. Um, I went uh, temporarily uh, and intermittently kind of insane. Um, it was like too much. And uh, I rushed into this whole thing thinking like I could do anything because I've got all this experience. I'm a meditator. <laughs> and I rushed into it like I do with everything. And I, I know some of you maybe are like this, uh, thinking, you know, I'm just going to jump off the cliff and everything will be fine. Uh, and it was. It was fine, actually. But um, it, it didn't feel fine for a while. And so that introduced me to the real you know, the dangers uh, and the, you know, the scary aspect of working with these substances. They can be totally destabilizing, you know. It was the most destabilizing experience I've ever had. And I spent months on retreat dying, you know, it felt like I was dying, uh, going through all kinds of ego dissolution and body dissolution, you know, experiences. And it was like, no, this was something else entirely. And so that was also really informative. Fortunately, I had a teacher and friend named David Loy who helped me kind of reframe it in a positive light, um, supported me quite a bit. I had a number of people that supported me with that experience. And so I continued to actively work with those substances, and I learned a lot about how to work with them and how to, you know, about myself. The next year, um, for the first time with Buddhist Geeks, I invited someone to come and talk about psychedelics. I'd never explored that topic before. So at one of our conferences, this young researcher named Catherine McLean, who was working out of Johns Hopkins University with uh, Dr. Roland Griffiths and his team, came and gave a presentation on psychedelic science. And it was fascinating because they'd found in the research that people using psilocybin actually had a permanent change in one of the major personality traits called openness. It increased openness. I was like, wow, of course. I mean, it makes sense, but um, it was amazing to see that the research, the psychedelic science research, which Dr. Grobe's going to be talking about some, uh, how far along it was. And then a couple years later, uh, I got connected with Dr. Roland Griffiths, who's uh, at Johns Hopkins, and he's running all of these amazing and interesting research projects on psilocybin. And one of them was on psilocybin and advanced meditators. And so that, I thought that would be such an interesting topic. Like how do these long-term meditators who have all this experience and who have very little or no psychedelic experience, what is their experience like once they take psych uh, psychedelics? Because that was kind of how I got into it. Um, and talking to him, you know, I found that in fact, these most of these people had a similar experience to me. They found it to be really powerful and uh, heart-opening and useful. 
And so when we put out that conversation in the podcast, I think it was called uh, psilocybin, a crash course in mindfulness. Um, I, was sh- I was a little shocked to find that um, it, it was extremely popular. Um, like, you know, most of the shows, probably within the first couple of weeks, you know, maybe 15,000 people download them. This one was like 50,000. You know, it was like way more. So that stuck with me, and the conversation stuck with me. And it was all, you know, at that point it was all safe, right? Because I was having scientists come up and talk about the research. And it's like, what could be safer than having these authorities of secular culture come and talk about these experiences without actually talking about my experience? So I was very much in the closet, you know, as a psychedelic practitioner now, um, as many are. And for good reasons. I sat with that for quite a while, and I sat with that tension of feeling like there was this aspect of me which could not come out. Um, And I think everyone, to some degree or another, has this experience with some aspect of themselves, has had this. I mean, for some people it's extreme, right? And for other people it's more subtle. Um, Fortunately for me, you know, this was a subtle thing. But also, I think, an important one and a reflection of our culture at this time. Um, Because now this thing is kind of opening up in some ways again after closing down for a few decades. And so we have an opportunity, I think, to talk about these things more openly uh, and honestly. Um, And here we're going to be talking about, you know, what is it like to try to explore the intersection points between these deep contemplative traditions and practices and frameworks and the psychedelic experience and all the different variety of psychedelic experiences that there are. Some of which have ancient roots in shamanic traditions and some of which have been synthesized, you know, in the 20th century. And so I started last year a podcast series called Meditating on Psychedelics to try to kind of open that conversation up more um, uh, and do, do what I could to try to, you know, um, explore it. And so that series has been going really well, and I've spoken to a couple of our guests here on that series, Spring and Trudy, and people are finding it really helpful, um, at least that's what I've heard. And so this is kind of a continuation of that conversation, um, that series. And... In framing the series, I had to think about, you know, who I wanted to talk, talk to um, and also think about, you know, what was the purpose of this conversation? I used to believe that it was helpful to include, to always include every perspective on an issue. You know, I was like, every perspective is important and we need to, you know, include it. And I think that's still true uh, in the larger scheme. But I think in order to have a really pointed conversation and exploration, sometimes it's important to also exclude certain points of view. Um, and so I had to figure out what, you know, what points of view are we excluding and what are we including? Where's the focus? So I came up with a, just a simple way of thinking about it, which was that you know, there was at least a few different camps you know, that we tend to fall into in this conversation. And on the one hand, you have the sort of uh, anti-psychedelic Puritans 
which I used to be. Um, and you know, these people say absolutely not. You know, there's there's no absolutely no reason to consider doing this. Um, and there's just you know, almost no nuance. It's just an absolute no. On the other end of that is like what I think of as the psychedelic evangelist. You know, who's like. Everyone should do this. You know, everyone would get benefit from this. There's no downsides. Um, let's put it in the water, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm sure no one here has been like that before. Um, you know, that's the absolute yes. And also for me, that, that position is problematic because it, it's, there's no nuance. It's just, it's absolute. Uh, and then there's the, you know, the agnostics that are just, I don't know. Uh, I thought, okay. Uh, the agnostics don't know, so it doesn't really make sense to talk to them. <laughs> uh, they don't have much to say. Uh, and the absolute yeses and absolute noes also, to me, it's not going to be a conversation. It's going to be just hearing a perspective that we've all heard before. Um, we've all heard those two perspectives. What's interesting to me is the, the kind of middle camps and I, I sort of identified those um, mainly because this is a Buddhist uh, podcast as the tolerant Buddhists and the psychedelic Buddhists, a uh, term that was coined by uh, Dr. Douglas Osto, who's a researcher. And the tolerant Buddhists are kind of uh, maybe buts. They're like, maybe this could be good, but, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, maybe it could be good, but, you know, psychedelics are just a, a gateway or doorway into the true experience of contemplative wisdom. Then you have to let go of them and continue to practice. That was one common um, narrative from the tolerant Buddhists. Um, or maybe that was really good for me at one point, but now not so much, and so I'm not sure if it's really a good idea or not. So the tolerant Buddhists are kind of open. There's an openness, um, but, but a kind of a hesitation and a doubt that this could be a useful marriage. So I thought, I really want to talk to those folks because they have a lot to say and they probably have a lot of good critical things to say. Um, and then the psychedelic Buddhists, which is how I have mostly identified lately, um, are the yes ands. You know, yes, this could be a useful marriage, a coming together. Um, and there's some downsides, you know, or things we need to talk about or need to figure out or explore, experiment with um, before we get too sure about that. So I've been speaking mostly in this series to psychedelic practitioners um, that have some grounding in Buddhist meditative wisdom and tolerant uh, practitioners who are kind of open to having the conversation. And it's led in some really interesting directions. And so one of the things that I've learned throughout that series is that in a sense where the conversation seems to be heading or wanting to head is to actually talk about what it might actually look like if these things were to be brought together. How would it actually look? What would it look like to um, for instance, host a retreat where, where there's meditation and some sort of substance being used in a ceremonial and intentional way? What does it look like to integrate the psychedelic experience, the meditative experience into life? 
um, and, and to have you know, kids, a job, relationships, and, and this be part of life? What would it be like to be able to share information about these things um, openly? And that's something we can't really do, um, even in a way now. Because it's really hard to innovate or to change or try new things when you don't have information about how it's going for everyone else. And my experience now is that, and what I've found, is that there are many pockets of communities in, in the contemplative world of people that are doing this stuff. Sometimes they're going down to Peru to practice in a space that's more uh, conducive, um, but often they're in their own communities and they're practicing and they're um, exploring and sharing um, with each other, but there's really no interconnection between those, those disparate communities. And there's also no way to be critical about what people are doing. And there's also, there's the issue of safety. You know, what are the best protocols and the best uh, things to have in mind when people are using these substances? Because part of what I'd learned um, with respect to psychedelics and drugs is um, just say no. You know, it's the abstinence-only policy. And the conversation can't even go beyond that often. So um, here we are coming out of the closet, exploring this stuff, and we're, not, and we're saying, hey, no, that's not the only option. Um, and so I'm really happy to be uh, inviting our next um, participant to join us in this conversation. Um, um, she is, to me, one of the most tolerant of the tolerant Buddhists. Um, she is one of my teachers. Um, she's the founding teacher of Inside LA. Her name is Trudy Goodman, and uh, please welcome her on stage. Thank you. <laughs> Good to see you. So, welcome to all of you. I can see some of you in the front, um, but I know you're there, back there too. And I'm really, I'm really happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. I think my role here is just to be open to explore. You know, we're not, um, as a Dharma teacher who's, you know, one of the leaders of our community, uh, not really here to judge or to say, yeah, let's do it, uh, but just to explore together and see, to have the conversation, to have a public conversation, because I am aware, I have been aware for a number of years that there is a resurgence of psychedelics. And when Ram Dass's book came out in 1971, I was, I can't remember how old I was. <laughs> anyway, I was young. I was in my 20s and I was young. And I had, um, when that book came out, I had like a um, four-year-old, I think. And it was really, I had already had some powerful spiritual experiences in the context of giving birth. And at one point, my two-year-old got very, very ill, and everybody thought she was dying. She didn't die. We had Mother's Day together. But, um, but it precipitated another big kind of spiritual opening to be in that kind of suffering and uncertainty. And when I read, and I, but those experiences, I thought, oh, well, that's just what happens when you have a baby, and that's just what happens when you're under duress, you know, that kind of intensity, and I thought, and I tucked them away and didn't think about them again. And remember, 
you know, in 1971, we didn't have any Dharma centers or anything where I lived, which was Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's just across the river from Boston. And so I read Ram Dass's book and I thought, well, maybe this would be a way to understand more. And it's really beautiful that Ram Dass is going to be here with us later and that um, I happened to be at Ram Dass's house when Roland Griffith came to pay his respects, to offer a bow to the, you know, psychedelic pioneer, uh, and to talk about his research, which, yes, Dr. Grobe was going to talk about that. And we, you know, in those days, um, when we took uh, LSD especially, we really did have ideas that we should dose the whole city and this would change the world. And, you know, you have those experiences and those ideas. Um, for me, for my own experience, I, I read Ram Dass's book and I was very, very curious then to try. And for me, it was complicated. I was a single mom. I had to arrange childcare. Uh, but I did all that. And the experiences that I had, um, well, not just with LSD, but I don't need to catalog all the drugs I took in those days. Um, I kind of did a little bit with you in the podcast, I think. Um, but what happened is uh, I had one experience that was so intense. And you know, it was a romantic evening. I was with my boyfriend. We were living in a communal situation on Cape Cod. Um, it was a full moon night. Uh, I told this story to you, Vince. We were walking up a hill, holding hands, summer night, full moon, completely stoned on acid. And I ex just remember looking at the moon and holding Danny's hand and feeling the utter perfection of everything. And it went beyond just, oh, I have a boyfriend I like, and the moon is full, and it's a summer night, and we're stoned, and now nice. It was everything. It was the perfection of everything, even the sad things, the horrible things. And, and I thought, I actually had the thought in that, you know, you have an insight, you see something, then you have some thoughts about it. And I thought, why do I have to be stoned to experience this? Why do I have to take a drug? I knew this is my nature. This is human consciousness. This is our birthright to be able to experience our life and our world in this way. And it made me sad that I, not that there was anything wrong, I was having a good time, but in the larger, I was looking at the bigger picture of I want to be more like this and to have access to this more in my life. And like, I will actually say, like most of the major Dharma teachers, that sparked my search for meditation. I didn't know what I was looking for. I was just looking for somebody who would understand what I had seen. And, um, and once I found that, and I, you know, it was a whole journey, but it took a while, actually. Uh, but my friend Larry Rosenberg, who was staying in our communal house in Cambridge, um, introduced me to meditation. And then he found this Korean Zen master from Providence, Rhode Island. And he brought John Kabat-Zinn and me 
to hear him give a talk. And what he said is really irrelevant. He could barely speak English. But I could see, you know, okay, he said things like, the wall is white, the floor is brown. The sky is blue, right? I mean, he was talking about suchness, but I didn't have that word then. But when I looked into his eyes, I realized he knows what I want to know. And then I got so involved in meditation that I really didn't think about psychedelics again. And that's where I've been, so involved in meditation that so I'm very interested in this new generation of people who are coming up who have already have, you know, established and pretty stable and often deep meditation practices who are then experimenting with the psychedelics to learn more. And I've asked myself, am I getting complacent? Maybe I could learn more. So uh, I'm open. I don't really think of myself as an open Buddhist, or what was it, a tolerant Buddhist? Yeah. Because I don't call myself a Buddhist. You know, we teach so much secular mindfulness, and there are so many different keys in the world to unlock these doors to different states of consciousness. And every continent has substances that they use for this purpose. Pretty much, I think every culture has their way. So that's what I wanted to say just to everybody, and, um, and I just want to give a shout out, because I might forget at the end, to Mark and our whole wonderful team for creating the beautiful setting. Because set and setting is very important when we're going on a journey. You know, it's not something to do recreationally for fun. At our Mother's Day lunch, uh, my, <laughs> my grandkids said, what are you doing tonight? And I started to tell them, and I could feel their parents starting to stiffen. <laughs> and, and I said, no, no, you're young, you're growing, your brains are developing, this wouldn't be for you. Um, the parents relaxed um, and said, we don't want you to take away from this conversation that this is something you should explore. So we'll see what happens to them in the future. They're young. <laughs> yeah, and I, 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 it makes me think, you know, what would it be like to talk about this stuff in a way that was neither, this is something you should avoid, nor is this something, you know, you should explore. Yeah, but I this can't. is just one of the, one of the things. You know? And you can't really recommend it to somebody either. That's like recommending getting married or recommending, you know, you can't recommend these things. They're too big, the experience is too big and too uncertain. And I also want to say, I have also directly experienced the harm that can be caused because one of my beloved family members went first and uh, had obviously some vulnerability in his brain and he took LSD and it was only maybe the fourth time that he did it and he never came down, not for 10 years. So he really lost, I mean, he's fine now, but he really lost 10 years of his life in mental hospitals and it was horrible. So I wanna talk, I wanna bring that forward too, that this is why we don't just say, yeah, try it, or don't do it just for fun, um, yeah. I'm curious, you know, given that that happened, um, you mentioned in the podcast your brother you know, that was the yeah. person that happened with. What had you still try LSD? I mean, what was... Well, it definitely slowed me down. Um, 
I would have tried it much sooner, mm. I'm sure, except I was afraid. Mm. Uh, why did I do it anyway? Because I so wanted to know about my mind, and I didn't have meditation yet. I didn't know another way to explore it. And I really wanted, I had been wanting to know for years. That's why I went and studied with Jean Piaget, the, because he wrote a book called The Origins of Intelligence. You know, I'm like, who knows about the mind in this world? Like, really knows. That's what I was looking for. And, it, and in a way, it seemed like it did bring, bring you into it that. It did. It mm. did. I mean, it did. After that experience, I was looking, of course, but um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to Ramdas and be here now, because I think that also gave me a kind of permission in some way. And um, I'm grateful to all my teachers, human and non-human, for these experiences. Yeah. Um, let me see if there's things I wanted to share with you. Yeah, and I think the task is the same, actually, for whether we're tripping and using psychedelics or whether we're practicing meditation intensively. The task is how do we take the experiences that we have and the insights and then integrate them into our everyday lives? How do we live from that place, you know? One of the reasons I think that I also lost interest um, in the psychedelics is I got tired of getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. <laughs> and that's what it felt like. You'd be in the Garden of Eden in paradise, and then the drug would wear off. I would feel like Cinderella, clock struck midnight, and I'm sitting on the ground with some mice running around and a pumpkin. And <laughs> it's like, where's my prince? Where's my chariot? You know, it was like that. And so, not wanting that kind of yo-yo of up and down and um, wanting something that was more stable and accessible and loving because ultimately it really is about the energy of love and discovering that love isn't just human love, but there's love in the universe, right? And, um, yeah. So... The true person is not anyone in particular, but like the deep blue color of the sky. We had a limitless blue sky for Mother's Day today. Happy Mother's Day. It's a bittersweet holiday, but if, if you have a good mother or had one, happy Mother's Day. And um, the true person is everyone, everywhere in the world. So that's what we discover, too. Uh, both in meditation and in psychedelics. Did you want to ask me stuff, Vince? Well, yes. Um, if we had several more hours, I'd love to sit and just talk about this forever. Is it time for spring to I come? I think so. I think Yay! I, I can't wait to hear spring. Yeah. And Dr. Grove. Yeah, so so we're going to invite Spring Washam up here to the stage to join us in this conversation. And um, yeah, we should just have a conversation about this. Welcome, Spring. So, I just want to mention a few things so people know a bit about your background. So, you've sure. co-founded the East Bay Meditation Center, which is, I heard, one of, one of the only two uh, 
Dharma communities focused on people of color. And um, congratulations on doing that important work. Um, and also, you've recently started the Lotus and Vine journeys, which, not that recently, it's been how Three many years? years? How yeah. long? A few years. A few years, yeah. So, so you're going down to Peru quite regularly and hosting these sort of Buddhist wisdom meets indigenous healing practices retreats. And I heard about that from my wife and while I was doing this series, and I was like, oh my gosh, someone's already done a lot of the work that we're trying to talk about. So I'm um, really happy that uh, got connected up with you. And you're also a Dharma teacher in the uh, insight meditation tradition. So you're, you're, uh, you're walking a lot of edges here. And I just want to add, she's coming to LA in August. I'm so excited. <laughs> yes, I'm very excited. I'm, she's going to yeah. be part of Inside LA, yay. <laughs> So, um, okay, I'll get this little pillow here. Would you like some water? No, I'm good. Um, yeah, it's just really great to have this conversation, and I love how you really set it up and framed it. For me, um, as we talked about in the podcast and other areas and how I've been sharing a little bit more about my story, I guess I'm coming out a little bit more. Um, I primarily worked with ayahuasca, that has been the medicine that I've worked with for nine years. And I, I came to it actually through years of already practicing meditation. I was actually on a three-month retreat um, with my teachers doing a concentration practice, and I completely fell apart. I mean, unraveled. And I, I knew I had all this trauma, but I, I think I fooled myself thinking I was done with it. You know, like, oh, I, I healed it, yeah. No, it was not healed. And so I realized then that uh, for me, I worked with the medicine. And I don't use the word psychedelic very much. doesn't really appeal to me. Drug, no. Medicine, entheogen, that feels really much my language. Uh, entheogen especially. And so, yeah, there's a connection to the divine. And um, I really approached it at a complete desperation. I mean, and I, when I looked into my teacher's eyes who were guiding me, I, I knew they couldn't help me. You know, the, the only thing that really worked at that point was just be with it, Spring. You can be with this, right? It was like, no, <laughs> I, there's a problem here. No, 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 this, somehow this has gone really wrong. And in some way, it went really right because uh, I met a friend after that retreat and she was a clinical psychologist, and she said that there was this plant that we're working with, a bunch of, a group of psychologists called ayahuasca, and it has been really helpful for me. And she had overcome all of her own childhood traumas and suffering. She said, why don't you try it? And I really had nothing to lose, because I was similar. I was kind of puritanical, wasn't I? I used to dress like a nun. I was like, no, the Dharma, that's it. That's all there ever is. This is all you need, just be with it. And then when I kind of hit this place where, wow, something else is needed, right? I couldn't just stay in that silent form. It just it magnified it, right? And so we're learning more about this. We're evolving these conversations. Um, and so that led me to my first ayahuasca experience. And that, during that period, I knew that ceremony I learned more about myself than I had in years. 
And then that led me to going to Peru. And I was sneaking to Peru for many years. I've told very few people, right? I was like going down for two months a year. I would spend time in the jungle. And then I would meditate. And I was already teaching. And we started a center in Oakland. I never told anybody. Everyone's like, wow, you're getting so much better and better. And I was like, oh, my meditations are really good now. <laughs> and that's what and I started inviting friends. And we called ourselves uh, uh, shamanistics. I was telling that to Vince. And we would meditate with ayahuasca. And we'd say, OK, here we go. And everything would happen in that period of six, seven hours. And we would sing mantras. And we would reflect on the Dharma. And I felt like I was seeing and feeling the Dharma, similar to how you said that you weren't embodied. This embodiment was coming back into me. I could feel my heart. I could understand the teachings. So for me, this was never about tripping out at Disneyland with my friends. It was, this was like serious business. I'm suffering and I got to get free because I had a community that I felt depended on me. I had a responsibility to wake up. I had a responsibility to grow. And, um, and the longing to grow was there. So that, that has always been my motivation, has been bodhicitta. That, that, that sense that I need to wake up fast so that I can be of benefit. Others are uh, depending on me. So then I ended up spending a year in the jungle. I decided to go full on and be sort of do an apprenticeship with Shapibos. Moved way out into the remote upper Amazon area. And then when I came back from that year away, I saw right away that I would start a Buddhist-based ayahuasca community, that I wanted the Dharma community to experience what I had come to see, how I was growing, and also how I felt that we could speed up our evolution. I think you used that word too. Um, uh, yeah, this way that you could, you could go a little bit faster, fast track some things. Um, but with that, there's the pitfalls of you know, needing to be ready, needing to be safe. And I felt that at that time, I could address all those issues that I hadn't seen that were worrisome in South America. You know, it's like, uh oh, we have a unique set of things, Westerners. And we sort of need to be able to, uh, a, a place where they could be addressed uh, in a safe way with the medicine, with the Dharma as our framework. So it's been, it's just so weird even to me so out talking about it. Even when I started Lotus Line, I was like secreting. But at some point I was like, I finally just told Spirit Rock, I'm really sorry, right? And uh, this is what I'm doing now, right? <laughs> and so we're having these conversations about drugs or fifth precept or what does it mean to be safe? What does it mean to use something? What does it mean to wake up? So I think this whole conversation is really, it's an evolution, right? We're, we're sort of meeting things. I feel that we've learned a lot from what has happened in the 60s with LSD. LSD is not my medicine. I don't use that. Um, but I've learned a lot from working with the Amazonian communities around ceremony, respect, how you set the stage. So the work that I do is really about healing and the people who come on my retreat science that has to be the first and foremost uh, intention in their mind, rather it's healing the body, the heart, the mind. Uh, so, yeah, so just a little bit more about that story. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So interesting to hear that. 
You told me. Yeah, I told Trudy. <laughs> Trudy is one of those open-minded yeah. Buddhists. Sorry, Trudy, you're way open. And I told, uh, I told several other teachers, and, and I, I'll just say a little bit about um, the controversy, you know, around being safe. And, uh, and I've been talking to more and more people, and I think as a community, and, you know, I spend three to four months a year in Peru. I'll be going to Peru for two months right after this conference, uh, leading some retreats there, uh, that even the shamanic cultures there are learning, you know, for them to have all these Westerners coming to South America looking for healing. They don't, they didn't know this culture. How they practiced with ayahuasca was totally different than the needs of our communities coming, right? And so we're all learning how to be safer, right? What I used to do a few years ago, I would never do now. Before I did a screen, I was like, oh, yeah, you have a calling. Great. Well, not so skillful, right? Now it's like, oh, mm. right. This, I don't think that psychedelics are right for everybody. I think that you have to have a certain framework. You have to have a certain constitution, a certain kind of grounded practice. You have to have support. And so I think one of the, the, the interesting things about the Dharma is it kind of creates this framework, like seeing, understanding emptiness, understanding certain concepts, principles. It gives you a kind of mental framework to go at that accelerated way. Right? You could hold it. You didn't get afraid when you saw the conversation. Like, oh, everybody's talking and I'm aware. An untrained mind may go into panic. Yeah, sure. But a, a, a mind that's steeped in wisdom can start to say, oh, this is a teaching right here. This is the awareness. And you could go with that in a different way. So I find that very exciting in a lot of ways that we can accelerate and how to do it safer, we're going to have to grow into that. What happens when somebody does have an experience like your brother? How do we hold that as a community? Um, I think those are still big questions, but screening, understanding, set and setting, dosage, all of these things I'm learning really quickly. So just the fact that we can have a conversation, it's huge. Yeah, it feels really important. I find it interesting, too, because those questions are ones that, in some ways, we've also been asking for a while with respect to meditation. You know, because going on retreat, you know, for anyone that's gone on retreat for a long while, it, it's, it's also not completely safe, you know? <laughs> right. Um, Trudy, you know that probably better oh than the most. <laughs> we've taught some long retreats together, and it's... it's um, can be really challenging to, not everybody can gracefully, <laughs> it's a practice to be able to let the conventional self just dissolve actually into the not yet known. And people, some people have a hard time on retreat and some people have had very, very rare, I'm happy to say, and, and only in the very long retreats, like two months. And so, but very occasionally, somebody has had a break, and it's taken them a while to come, like you said, to reconstitute, I think was the word you used. Hmm. And, and that's a real and present um, caution 
No. And also, just like people can get dependent on going to retreats because they haven't learned to integrate into their lives, the same thing can happen with using the substances, too. So there are a lot of reasons to be respectful. I loved what you said about the sacredness mm -hmm. and having that setting of respect and a sense of the sacred. Yeah, I think that's really key, is how we hold these things for the future. And I, the conversation is kind of coming out of the closet in a way can help us look at how things are being done, right? It's like, oh, you want to do this? Okay, here's a way. <laughs> oh, here's a way that you can be safe. Here's, what you, here's your checklist. I mean, eventually we're going to have to give these tools um, and share what we've experienced. And I do wish it could be legalized at least, at the very least, for people who are in hospice or palliative care. And Charlie will talk about the research that shows how helpful it's been for people, people who have addiction um, issues or depression. I would like to see these medicines be available mm -hmm. to help therapeutically. Yes. Yeah. Any other questions? <laughs> We've talked a lot, but... Yeah, no, this is good. Um, how, how do you feel about bringing uh, Dr. Grove on? When is Ramdas coming on? What time? I don't have the, t the schedule in my head. Tw about 20 minutes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's have Charlie come on. Yeah. yeah. So Dr. Grobe. So our, our final panelist tonight is uh, <laughs> Dr. Charlie Grobe. Welcome. Welcome. So Dr. Grove has um, been a psychedelic researcher since that was probably happening. <laughs> oh, not, not, not that far back. Not that far back. Okay. <laughs> Pretty close. Um, you, you were involved with the, in, in the 90s with the first phase one trials of MDMA, right. which are now entering phase three. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, no, not, not just involved, you were leading the phase one trials. Right. Yeah. We... we, we um at Harbor UCLA, we, LA Biomed, we um, uh, ran the necessary phase one studies in normal volunteers with MDMA, which were necessary before uh, treatment studies could be uh, done. Nice. And, you, and you've also done some uh, research around ayahuasca and right. psilocybin. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I could mention briefly my research. Um, so, yeah, in the early 90s, we did a, uh, the Phase one MDMA study at Harvey UCLA. Also, in the early 90s, I went down to the Brazilian Amazon with my friend Dennis McKenna and also Jace Calloway, where we conducted a uh, fairly rigorous uh, biomedical psychiatric uh, research evaluation of the physical and emotional health of long-term members of the Unhada Vegetal, mm -hmm. the UDV, one of the main Brazilian syncretic ayahuasca churches, which have had permission and sanction from the Brazilian government to take, uh, to take ayahuasca as a psychoactive sacrament since the late 80s. So we conducted that study in Manaus in the, uh, up in the north of Brazil in the Amazon. Uh, some years later, I went back with my friend, the anthropologist Marlene Dapka de Rios, and we did a, we, we were asked by the Brazilian judiciary to, to evaluate the functional health of 
adolescents who were participating with their families in family ceremonies using ayahuasca. So we went down there to do that study. In the early 2000s, uh, with the support of my colleagues at the Hefter Research Institute, we conducted the, um, the pilot uh, research study using a psilocybin treatment model for individuals with advanced stage cancer with uh, significant anxiety, depression, demoralization. And um, that was, we, 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 the inspiration for that study actually came from the pioneer researchers dating back to the 50s and 60s, including Stan Groff, Walter Pankey, Gary Fisher, who really uh, did remarkable work. And, and when I was young, I read their, their published articles, and I was very much inspired by, uh, by what they had done. And that really kind of, for me, helped open up my own path of uh, what I would do with my career. And then my most recent study with uh, uh, my uh, friend and colleague Alicia Danforth has been using an MDMA treatment model with um, uh, young adults uh, on the, who are high-functioning on the autism spectrum who have overwhelming social anxiety. So we were targeting the social anxiety, not the autism per se. Uh, it was an MDMA treatment model. It was, as with our other studies, a, a placebo control, uh, randomized, double-blind study. Um, we got very good results. In fact, our, uh, in a day or two, our, our manuscript will be on its way to the journal to, to, get, to get reviewed. So that's some of what I've been doing. I, I'm sort of curious, from your perspective, how significant is it that MDMA is entering this phase three Well, trial? yeah, MAPS, um, some of you are familiar with the organization. They, they, they actually sponsored my phase one MDMA study. Can they've say what it is, the organization? Uh, say what Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, uh, founded by Rick Doblin, who's probably well-known to at least many of you. Um, uh, Michael Bethofer, a psychiatrist in South Carolina, has uh, conducted several very impressive studies using an MDMA treatment model for chronic uh, refractory post-traumatic stress disorder. It's very, very, very difficult, often conditioned to treat. Our conventional models are, are somewhat limited, particularly our psychopharmaceutical model uh, treatment, which is generally SSRIs. Um, but uh, Michael Mithoffer has done marvelous work demonstrating a significant uh, improvement in symptoms of PTSD that are sustained for some period of time. So now MAPS is working with the FDA to get permission for a phase three study, which basically means a, a, a multi-site study, a study using the same protocol that's conducted at a, at a number of different research sites around the country. So they're kind of gearing up to start that. I, I should also mention an organization in Wisconsin called the USONA Institute, which is um, working to develop multi-site uh, study using a psilocybin treatment model for initially for refractory depre major depression. So there's some activity that uh, I'd say the uh, the pace of progress has really been picking up lately, and. Um, and the reaction, the, you know, I, starting out in my career talking about psychedelics, I was, sure, I was assured this would be a career killer, yeah. <laughs> that I, I wouldn't be on my feet if I would breathe a word of this to the public. But I, I really felt very passionately about this, and 
you know, really wanted to do it, so uh, mm -hmm. I, 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 I did it, but very cautious about dealing with the media. Um, uh, still cautious, but I'm noting that in recent years, the media has become more and more enthusiastic, more and more supportive. I gave a talk in the Bay Area last weekend, and I noted then that in the previous two days, over last weekend, four major articles appeared you know, speaking of the tremendous value of a psychedelic treatment model in San Francisco Chronicle, uh, Washington Post, and the New York Times. Curiously, the New York Times article was, it was, it was on page two, and it said, you know, there's been a lot of bad news lately out in the world. So we're going to tell you five good things that have happened in the last week. And one of those five good things was uh, Michael Medhoffer's publication in The Lancet a British journal, of his uh, MDMA treatment of PTSD uh, work. So uh, times are changing, you know, and about time. You know, really, it's been some 50 years since uh, psychedelic research was rather precipitously shut down, late 60s, early 70s, and uh, it's taken a long time to get to this point, but I really do feel we're on the threshold of um, this model gaining more acceptance, um, and, uh, you know, speaking to, like, mainstream medical uh, audiences, uh, Ira Bayak is here, and Ira and I spoke recently to, to a couple of palliative medicine conferences in Boston and in California, and, and I was very struck by how, how, to the degree to which this audience uh, resonated with the notion of utilizing a psychedelic treatment model for people struggling with end-of-life issues. And uh, I think they got it. They, they, even though it had not been an issue in that field uh, for, for many decades. So things are moving forward. Mm. And thank you for your part in that. Oh, yeah. Uh, moving in forward. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I've loved every minute of it. This is what I had this passion to do. In fact, I. In the early 70s, I dropped out of college, and my father was very concerned about my, what he perceived as my lack of direction. He said, son, you've got to figure out what you're going to do. So one day I said, Dad, I figured it out. I know. I know what I'm going to do. He said, what's that, son? I'm going to study psychedelics. They are fascinating. There's so much we can learn about the mind, you know, the brain, mental illness, or these remarkable treatment models. And he said, son, son, let me tell you something. There may be something to what you say, but no one will listen to you unless you get your credentials. So uh, hmm. that was my dad's way of getting me back to school. Years later, he said, you know, I thought you'd grow out of that, but <laughs> not, 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 not entirely, not entirely. So yes, I, I also want to, you know, myself and my colleagues like Michael and Rick and my, my friends at the Hefter, we've... Um, We've, I think we've accomplished a fair amount lately, but I think it's very important to, to, to credit the pioneer generation of researchers, starting with, you know, with Ram Dass and Ram Dass's group at Harvard, Tim Leary, Ralph Metzner. Ralph has been one of my greatest friends for 30 years, and I've learned tremendously from Ralph, and I've learned tremendously from all, from all of the research that was done in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, you know, it's very important that we learn the lessons of the past, and we not, at the very least we not keep repeating the same old... If we're going to make mistakes, let's make some new ones, you know. <laughs> not the same old ones. And also acknowledging the, um, the debt we owe to um, the indigenous people who, 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 uh, who, who, who accrued the knowledge over millennia and kept it 
secret and hidden and safe when there was danger of wiping out the knowledge. And, uh, and, for, and the shamanistic model, there's a lot to learn in terms of uh, optimizing safety. They knew all about set and setting, yeah, even though uh, Ram Dass and Ralph and Tim kind of uh, popularized it, the native peoples were all into uh, establishing, uh, for their culture, optimally safe uh, situations and, um, and administering under very secure conditions. So, uh, again, much we can learn from, from the ancients and from the, those from previous generations. Thank you. Can I ask you a question, sure, Charlie? Sure. Yeah, so um, what happened before is that people got threatened, I think, by what, was, what is possible through the exploration um, of entheogens. And, and I wonder if that mistake, whatever, I don't know what mistake was made, um, but how can we prevent this happening again? Yeah. Research getting shut, shut down, people getting freaked out. I mean, the indigenous people were shut down oh. by the Christians mm -hmm. when they came, the Spaniards. And I mean, right. you know, there's history that has repeated itself That's right. of shutting down that which gets us out of our mind house, out of the boxes that our culture, you know, mm -hmm. teaches us to be in as a personality. And so, um, and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, I think anything that helps the unconscious become conscious that leads to more awareness is a good thing, but not everybody feels that way. Right. So what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, you make a great point. You know, when the Spaniards arrived in the New World, they saw what the indigenous people were doing with the mind-altering plants. This was heresy. This was absolutely taboo, and anyone who would use it was punished with the harshest punishments of the Inquisition. Um, the, the knowledge went deeply underground. It only resurfaced in, in the 50s with Lawson's discoveries in, uh, in Mexico and then uh, you know, Hoffman's discovery in uh, Switzerland. But I, I think in part, things were shut down in the 60s because the culture was not ready. The culture had not sufficiently matured and it became uh, mired in culture wars. Yes. And now we've had an extra many decades, I think, to come to terms with the psychedelic experience. And us kids from the 60s are now the, uh, getting to be the elders of today, and, and we can reflect back that one has to be careful and use it under optimally safe conditions, but if you do that, there's a lot you can learn, and there's this remarkable potential for healing. So I think my goal has always been to work within you know, the medical profession. To, to, to help mainstream medicine understand the, 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 the positive potentialities. But in so doing, it's imperative that we set optimal, the optimally safe parameters for use, both in formal studies as well as, you know, retreats and, you know, underground use. There, there needs to be very careful screening of yes. anyone who's going to be having this uh, ex experience. Uh, there should be no mixing with other drugs or alcohol. Um, someone, people need the most serious of intentions. This is not for frivolity, you know. This is not joking around. This is deadly serious. And uh, if you don't come in with a serious intention, you often get kicked pretty hard. Um, so there's, uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I like your optimism about it. Well, that's great. No, I, yeah, it, no, it makes sense. Are, things, I think things are looking more promising. Um, but, 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 but again, I, I'd say we need to be just deliberate, take it a step at, at, you know, one step at a time, not get too far ahead of ourselves, yeah. not, uh, not overdo it with the press because they, they could turn around and there yeah. could be a backlash like there was in the uh, 60s that got pretty nasty. You know, the claims that were made in the 60s, such as uh, one LSD session is worth uh, five years of intensive psychoanalytic treatment, well, there may have been something to that, but it certainly got the establishment, the conventional psychoanalysts, quite threatened that it would take away from their, uh, their, their, their business. So I think we need, we need to go about it smart. I've always felt, from the medical research perspective, to, to, to identify patient populations that generally do not do well with conventional treatment. You know, like treating the terminally ill, the psychological uh, con condition chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, alcoholism, one of the most you know, devastating illnesses that we still have, don't have effective treatments for. Um, one thing psychedelics really do is I think f fuels their, their healing capacity is that they, are, they can restore a sense of meaning and purpose. Yes. E even for those people who are at the end of their lives, who feel cut off from their identity as it had been previous. Um, it, it, I, I see this as existential medicine and, and, and most needed for great existential crises. And maybe a couple of uh, stories. One is um, Humphrey Osmond, a very renowned British-Canadian psychiatrist in the 50s, did a, worked in Saskatchewan in a treatment of a hospital full of alcoholics, and he developed a psychedelic treatment model. Sometime later, he looked at the data to see, you know, how many, what percentage established sustained sobriety and, and what percentage had, had relapsed. And he found that the strongest predictor for establishing and maintaining sobriety over time was not simply having an aesthetic experience or a rich autobiographic insight experience. It, it was having a powerful psycho-spiritual epiphany a mystical level experience. That seemed to be the strongest predictor for those individuals who establish sobriety and maintain sobriety. Walter Pankey and Stan Groff in their work with terminal cancer patients in the uh, late 60s found similarly that those individuals who during the course of what was often a one treatment session had a, this powerful mystico-mimetic level experience. That seemed to open the door for you know, the, the therapeutic um, uh, effects that, that, that ensued. So, uh, a lot to learn from those guys. Thank you. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Love the term existential medicine. Existential, existential medicine. Existential medicine, yeah. yes. This is so good. That's exactly what it is with people. Then the lack of meaning is devastating. Right. Right. That's been my experience with people seeking out the, the medicine ayahuasca. I need to know why. Yeah. Why am I here? It's painful to not know or feel. That's right. No, and, you know, many people who go off the rails with alcohol or other substances, it, it often starts as an effort to transcend, an effort to find meaning. And, of course, it crashes and burns because these aren't the right substances. But here we have these, uh, really, these secrets from the, the, the indigenous people, you know. And, you know, here we are at this particular time and place in history, and we're blessed, I believe, to, to be here when these medicines, 
these remarkable medicines are, 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 are coming back. We have access to them. We can start to utilize them, often now in, in, in sanctioned settings, and, uh, and really be able to utilize their, their remarkable capacity to transform. Mm -hmm. And boy, I tell you, our, our world is in a lot of trouble right now. Mm -hmm. What better time for, for these, the, 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 these sacred medicines, these ancient medicines, to, uh, to reemerge, perhaps to mm -hmm. uh, show us the... Uh, the direction we need to go. My friend Ralph Metzner had a, I, you know, had a, gr a great line I, I like to quote from, which is, um, isn't it remarkable how we ingest plants in order to learn how to be human? Yeah. <laughs> Ralph, if you ever know, got to know, is a fount of wisdom. I, I, I have my pen and pad always at it. <laughs> So I have a question. Have you and, um, is it okay if I just, like, okay. Yeah, we're going <laughs> yeah, to bring Ram Dassin soon, but. Uh, yeah, okay. Just, yeah. Please. Um, you and Dr. Bayek, Ira, and his wife, Yvonne, are here. Have you been able to use these substances with people who are dying? Have you been able to do that? Well, we, I mean, in, our, in our, the study we did, uh, at Harbor UCLA, we work with people who were mm -hmm. dying, and subsequently, two studies on the East Coast at NYU okay. and at Johns Hopkins have, have they, they've done similar studies. They actually got permission to use a slightly higher dose. Um, we all had very good results. So, you know, our, our study was able to maintain very good safety parameters, which mm -hmm. for me as a physician, first and foremost, it's to protect safety. Mm -hmm. Of course. So, um, yeah. Well, hopefully, we as uh, meditation teachers also first do no harm. Like yes. that's the main thing. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, upstairs in the room where uh, we got, you know, made up and ready, uh, <laughs> there was a bathroom, and I went in the bathroom, and there's a mirror. As soon as you walk through the door, there's a mirror, and it's in the shape of a coffin. <laughs> so you see your body. <laughs> standing there in a coffin. And I love this. I want this for our center. <laughs> because we, we cultivate awareness of our mortality, awareness of impermanence, awareness so that we can find um, the preciousness of just being alive and appreciate our lives. And in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they begin practice with all these meditations on all the different ways you can die. And, um, and it's not to be gloomy or terrify ourselves, but it's just to keep in mind. It's a kind of existential medicine helping us become used to this idea that, um, yes, we are mortal. And, you know, I just was hoping that you had had a chance to actually yeah. yeah, do the work and, with And there's people. a hope we can, we, you know, we'll be able to develop some additional studies. We've got, we've got some plans, and there are other groups around the country mm -hmm. and also elsewhere in the world who are also moving in this direction. Yeah, Beautiful. So, and, and let me mention, you know, I, I like to refer also sometimes to Aldous Huxley, who kind of mm, wrote all about yes. this years and years ago. Psilocybin, right? It was... Well, well with uh, plant, plant psychedelics. Plants, yep. 
he, in his book, Island, which I recommend, his last novel, there's a beautiful section of uh, initiating a, uh, a, 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 one of the inhabitants of the island through a psychedelic experience into, um, into the next world, wherever, yeah. wherever she went. And actually, with Huxley's, um, Huxley had an interesting uh, end which was, um, you know, the last 10 years of his life, he was fascinated with psychedelics. He wrote uh, quite a bit on this, a, a beautiful novel, Island, Doors of Perception. But when he was uh, dying of cancer, he arranged with his doctor and his wife, Laura, that he, he couldn't talk because the cancer had invaded his, uh, his throat. But he arranged that at a certain signal, the doctor would inject him with 100 micrograms of LSD. So, uh, oh in, you know, Aldous Huxley not only uh, uh, talked the talk, he walked the walk. Yes, I know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.